EU Confidential gets started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by Shell. The climate law will enable companies to invest in climate neutrality by introducing sectoral roadmaps. We welcome the 2050 and 2030 targets, which will enhance the business case for low-carbon investment. The Oversight Board, they on the one hand recognise that political speech is a very particular form of speech. And on the other hand, they suggested that politicians with significant reach shouldn't be regarded as different in any way to any other user of Facebook with significant reach. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And this is officially our 200th episode. We've actually done a bunch more than 200, but you know, in these times, we'll take any excuse to celebrate. So we do so with a bumper edition. At the top of the podcast, you heard Nick Clegg, the former Deputy Prime Minister of the UK, who's now Facebook's Vice President for Global Affairs and Communications. You'll hear him in conversation with our technology editor, Nick Vineker, about recent big stories involving Facebook, the Trump ban, data scraping, the news algorithm, Apple's new iPhone privacy settings. And then you'll hear a different take from the president of the Association of Commercial Television in Europe, Guillaume de Poche, who makes the case for why platforms like Facebook should be treated more like broadcasters and publishers. But first, let's dive into a big story of recent days with our podcast panel. Warm welcome to Remontaz in Paris, Irene. Hello, all. And to Matt Karnichnik in the Berlin area. <laughs> Good morning. Hey, uh, great to have you both. Uh, just briefly, this is the 200th episode of this podcast, the 200th official episode. We're not going to make a huge deal about it because we've got our birthday coming up, so we'll make more of a deal then. But uh, great to have the core gang here for the, the 200th official edition. The bicentenary. Yeah, the bicentenary. There you go. We should have some fireworks. Perhaps Christina can add some. But uh, I thought we might talk about something that uh, made a lot of waves in Europe, and that's the US proposal to waive intellectual property rights or patents around COVID-19 vaccines. Kind of surprise announcement last week, which then became kind of the main theme, uh, right, Reem, at the Porto Summit, which was officially about uh, social policy, was also originally envisaged as an EU-India summit, which happened as a video conference, but with most of the EU leaders in Porto. You were there. It felt like initially in the in the first couple of days, this proposal, there was a kind of holding response from EU leaders, Ursula von der Leyen, saying, well, we're, we're open to talk about this. And that's why we are ready to discuss how the US proposal for waiver on intellectual property protection for COVID vaccines could help achieve that objective. But then as time wore on, it became more of a kind of firm pushback, right? That's what you heard in Porto, I think. So, yeah, the first EU leader to come out very clearly and say, no, we're not on board with this, was German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron kind of hedged his position for a bit and said, you know, I, I'm open to it, but it's not really the priority right now. And then in Porto, interestingly, a U.S. announcement basically took over the agenda. 
And I think that is really the main issue here. With a U.S. administration that is back on the multilateral scene, clearly anything the U.S. says, anything the U.S. does now has the potential to basically take the EU off its track. And it's starting to really get on the nerves of some of the EU leaders, especially French President Emmanuel Macron. Why? Because he's always been that person who, under the Trump administration, had become kind of the leader of the multilateral world in a way. He was always the one leading these initiatives and, and, and sort of being at the forefront. And so we saw him at uh, multiple doorsteps and press conferences. The first time I saw him, I asked him, you know, why can't you do both? Why can't the EU and the US actually work together on both lifting and waiving the patents, but also making sure that they lift the export bans and also donate doses? And he said, no, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not pitting those two against each other. Of course, we can do both. And then at the end of the summit, where at the press conference, he was asked again, you know, how come the US is basically now claiming the leadership on this moral issue of solidarity? It bothered him so much in a rare moment where I think he really let us know what he thinks. He basically put the European press corps on the couch, on the literal and I mean, on the... Well, the only person who gets put on the literal couch, as we know, is Ursula von der Leyen recently. Uh, and that was a huge incident. <laughs> I, I mean, not on the literal couch, exactly. On the figurative couch. And he started saying that we have complexes. Après, je ne peux pas traiter vos complexes. That he doesn't have a complex. Moi, j'en ai pas. Then what we should understand is we have an inferiority complex toward the US, of course, and we are obsessed with Biden, what the US oh, does. Je vous pose une question presque psychologique pour vous. But in reality, all the U.S. is doing is following the lead of the European Union and that we have fallen asleep and missed the movie. I'm quoting him directly. And that, you know, a year ago when France and the EU launched Act A, the initiative to help poor countries to have access to uh, vaccines, but also diagnostics and therapeutics for uh, COVID, and the US sat that out because the Trump administration wasn't interested. Back then, we didn't say that the EU was leading and that the US was following. Ah, les États-Unis ont le leadership. And I almost wanted to point out to him that actually at Politico, we did just that multiple times. But I figured might as well just let him kind of be annoyed on his own. Yeah. Um, Matt, you and I have talked about this. I mean, it's one of these things where on the surface, you can look at it and say, because the issue behind this or the, the way that this is presented is this is a way to get more vaccines, particularly to poorer countries. So you allow uh, vaccines to be produced more easily worldwide by lifting the intellectual property rights that are around these vaccines. And of course, it is more complex than that. But on the surface, of course, it does for the US, it looks like the US is kind of playing the good guy and the Europeans are playing the, the bad guy. But why have the the Germans in particular and Angela Merkel come out so strongly against this? Yeah, well, first, I'd, I'd just like to say that I think the reaction that we've seen in Europe, in particular from Macron, you know, is, is what the psychologists refer to as projection. You know, I mean, Reem said that he was sort of viewed as the leader of the multilateral world. I mean, that might be true in his own mind, but I, I don't think that that is generally the case outside of uh, France or maybe some parts of, of Western Europe. And, and that is, I think, the core dynamic here where you have, you know, the Europeans 
naturally are very focused on themselves and uh, what's going on in Europe and their politics. The same is true of the Americans. I, I don't think that uh, Biden, when he made this suggestion, was really thinking uh, or anticipating what the Europeans might think about it. I think he was much more concerned about his own reputation internationally in the pandemic for not having shared the vaccine. And there's been a lot of criticism at the UN and around the world over the refusal. And also domestically, right, with a certain element of his democratic base, right? Absolutely. Not just for not exporting the vaccine, but for not even exporting the uh, component parts, if you will, that, uh, you know, you need to produce these things. So I think he was uh, trying to recover from that. And he did catch the Europeans off guard, in particular, the Germans. And it sounds like the Germans are now being uh, a bit stingy over, over the vaccine issue when it comes to the patents. But I think that there's another issue at play here, which is that in Germany, the sanctity of intellectual property is extremely important. Uh, it's an engineering country. I think listeners will probably be familiar with the Mittelstand, which is this sort of small and medium-sized engineering sector in Germany that is at the core of the economy. I think Germany uh, still has more patents than any other country in the world every year that are registered. So this idea of just, you know, throwing the uh, vaccine patents out the window uh, is just something that is completely anathema to most people in the country, quite frankly. I think that there's, there's just, there's no consensus, there's no momentum behind this proposal outside of, you know, maybe the left party and, and the Greens. And so I, it's just basically not going to happen for that reason. And, you know, there's something that, Actually, Macron said that does make a lot of sense, which is that the Moderna CEO, so one of the two big companies that are producing the mRNA vaccine in the States, has said that he's okay waiving the patent, but that has not actually helped poorer countries produce their own doses, because Macron says what is needed way before waiving the patent is transferring the technology needed in order to be able to produce these very difficult new vaccines uh, that, you know, require technology and know-how that most countries, including France, by the way, don't have. Uh, the question, again, that I still don't understand is why has it become an either-or conversation? Well, I suspect the reason to that, just quickly, is that Biden wants to be seen taking the initiative here and not just playing catch-up. He probably will open up the uh, export of, of vaccine in, in the coming months because the U.S. is going to have a glut of vaccines. So, you know, I think this is more of a, a PR exercise than anything on the on the part of the Biden administration. It is this contest for the moral high ground, right, which uh, I think they, they weren't used to having, let's say, over the past um, four years. But it's also worth saying, I think, that also this is one of these things where any lifting of the intellectual property would go through the World Trade Organization. As, as we know, that's a multilateral organization where things are done by consensus. If you even look at the original US statement, it says we will actively participate in text-based negotiations at the World Trade Organization needed to make that happen. 
happen. I mean, I think anyone who reads a sentence like that knows that's not going to be a quick process. I'm not sure what other kind of negotiations there are, but they obviously felt the need to specify that they would be text-based. And that just sounds like an awful lot of uh, lawyers uh, haggling over, you know, commas and clauses and wording. And um, so I suspect that's going to take a while. Perhaps we'll just leave it there. It was uh, great to see you both again. I should have known someone with Austrian roots would give us an extra level of psychoanalysis. Uh, but I thank you both. Reem, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And Reem and Matt will be back later with the return of recommendations. Even though lockdown is easing, they will have some tips to uh, entertain you or keep you interested or stimulated in the coming weeks. Now, coming next, it's a tale of two Nicks. Facebook's Nick Clegg in conversation with our own Nick Vinegar. A message from Shell. Shell welcomes the historic European Climate Law Agreement. To reach the EU's climate targets, we need to accelerate GHG emission reductions across all economic sectors. The provision in the climate law to establish sectoral roadmaps to net zero emissions is of crucial importance to unlock investment, particularly in those sectors where change is hardest to achieve, like aviation, like shipping, road freight and heavy industry. Roadmaps provide businesses with the longer-term views they need to invest and also help ensure policy consistency across sectors. Policy mechanisms to create lead markets for clean energy need to be in sync with incentives to invest in supply and infrastructure. Now let's hear from Facebook's Nick Clegg, who spoke to our technology editor Nick Vinegar earlier this week. They covered a lot of ground, but Nick Vinegar started by asking about the recent decision by Facebook's oversight board to uphold the company's decision to ban Donald Trump, but with some caveats. While they wholeheartedly agreed with our rationale uh, for um, suspending Donald Trump uh, in the wake or at the time of the terrible events on, on the Capitol in early January. They also had some very sort of searching and probing and challenging questions about whether we were being coherent and transparent enough in explaining the policy basis for our, our decisions. And they found that whilst they agreed with the decision in early January, they did not find that we behaved reasonably in indefinitely suspending uh, Donald Trump because they felt that we have not got sufficiently clear policies governing that kind of action. And I think that, you know, that is exactly what the Oversight Board is there for. It is now our job to go away and consider carefully what the Oversight Board has told us and to return really with, with two things. One, a clearer explanation of the policy basis upon which we take these decisions. And secondly, of course, therefore also a, clear, a clearer decision on what we do in this particular case, as far as Donald Trump is concerned. I'm not sure if we'll need the full six months, but we want to be as considered and thoughtful as, as the board rightly expects of us. Two quick follow-ups. Do you think there's going to be policies spelled out for world leaders, that special circumstance of people who are also newsmakers through what they say? Another one is, do you think this is one that's going to bounce back up to the oversight board? That was something people immediately anticipated, that this will be passed back to the independent group of experts spelling out or adjudicating these issues. The oversight board, interestingly, 
sort of said two things which are in tension with each other, to be honest. They, they on the one hand, recognise that political speech, particularly in open democracies, is a very particular form of speech. As a matter of first principle, it's important that people have as unhindered an access as possible to what politicians are saying to each other, to voters and about themselves in open societies. And on the other hand, they suggested that politicians with significant reach shouldn't be regarded as different in any way to any other user of Facebook with significant reach. So we have to grapple with that. In terms of whether it'll go back to those, like, look, I really, I, I can't sort of peer into my crystal ball and tell you what's going to happen. It's certainly not my intention. It's certainly not our intention at Facebook for this to become a endless sort of pinball exercise where it just gets, uh, you know, pinged from one body to another. A uh, subject that's related to this is that of how content is disseminated on Facebook and some of it amplified, some of it not amplified to not have so much reach. And one thing you've been talking about, Nick Clegg, is how you're going to adapt the news algorithm. Uh, and you flagged a certain number of changes or things that will uh, come about to be more transparent, to let give people a better sense of how certain types of news are amplified and get get a lot of engagement and others don't. I wondered if you could give us some insight into what you're going to tell people about the news algorithm. So, I mean, the, the focus of certainly of my attention recently, and it's not the only way in which the algorithm or algorithms operate, but it's probably one of the most important as far as Facebook is concerned, is ranking. Quite simply, what do you see more prominently than other pieces of content? Um, and I think it is incumbent on, on Facebook to do two things, to provide as much transparency as we can, much greater than we have done hitherto on how that process works, to demystify it a bit. Because, of course, because it's a bit opaque, because people don't quite know, you know how, the, how the engine room works in, in a social media operation like Facebook, often, I, I've observed, people therefore assume the very worst. So transparency first, and then secondly, control. That if people want to override the algorithm and, and want to organize their own news feed according to their own taste, they should be able to do so. And we have recently delivered quite a breakthrough. So um, at the top of your, of your news feed, you'll now see a feed filter bar where you can toggle between either having the traditional algorithmically organized ranking news feed, or you can switch to, in effect, override the algorithm and have it chronologically ordered for you, which, by the way, was always possible, but it was always a control that was buried away somewhere difficult for users or not as easy for users to find as it should be. And then the third thing, which is the newest and I think is potentially the most interesting going forward, is a, is a sort of favourites feed filter bar where you can basically handpick the pages that you that are your favorites and that they will then populate your your news feed and, and the reason i think that is significant is because that seems to me to hint to a future which i would very much hope to see facebook move towards in the years to come which is just to give people more and more ability to curate almost their own their own news feed you know i would love to imagine in 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 the future that you could in effect turn dials if you want more political politics you can turn it up if you want less, you can turn it down. And I think what we are seeing now is the first steps in that long journey of making people you know, comfortable with the idea that they are in control. As far as the algorithmically organized ranking system is concerned, it is worth, of course, remembering that the most important signals that determine what you see most prominently on your 
newsfeed are, who your friends are, and which groups you are you are part of, of course, as well as things that you've liked and commented on and, and so on. And I hope what you will see in the months and years ahead is we're just going to lift the veil ever more ambitiously, I hope, uh, and ever more transparently. Thanks, Nick. I, I know you have a lot to say about this. You've published a probably your longest uh, piece of written work uh, since you started the job at Facebook about the changes. I do want to challenge you on the news algorithm. Uh, we had a conversation a while ago about the types of posts that received the most engagement on Facebook, which happened to be right-wing, rather polarizing types of information. Do you think that this is simply a natural effect that this type of content is the most engaging, which is what we were saying back then? Or should the algorithm intervene that when the content is polarizing, when the content is extreme or weighted to one side, then perhaps the algorithm should intervene to either demote or probably turn down the volume using your dial analogy on some of that content? I may be misinterpreting your question or misunderstanding. If you're suggesting, should we build algorithmic systems that somehow don't allow people to or discourage people from engaging with conservative content. I don't think that's something that a private company should do. We're not building our algorithms for political choices. That's for people to make. Um, So I don't know. I don't think that would be a good idea at all. I don't think it would be welcome. And by the way, as you know, in the United States, there is a very, very strong feeling, which is in in a sense completely counter to what you just suggested from many, many conservatives that, you know, for instance, Facebook's independent fact checkers spend much more time fact checking content from the right rather than left, that much more content from conservatives is removed rather than from the left. So it's a very fraught area. And you've taken, in a sense, one important, but nonetheless, only one cake slice in all of this. What I'm asking you is, does Facebook need to do more on the content that pushes people's buttons, whether that's highly polarizing news content, whether that's misinformation about the COVID-19 vaccines, in that area where people are getting an emotional reaction and engaging with the content, are your algorithmic changes going to address uh, at times the overrepresentation of some of that type of emotive, reactive content? Yeah, I would draw a distinction here, if I may, which is, of course, Facebook must and does and will continue to do a huge amount to either demote or remove content, which is false, which is hateful. We can't, however, in a free society, do either stop people from debating whether they think this vaccine or that vaccine is better or worse. I mean, you know, after all, it's 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 the regulators themselves who've paused certain vaccines and said some sort of things, are more risk is attached to one vaccine compared to another. There's been endless debate about the Russian vaccine, the Chinese vaccine. In a free society, we can't sort of crush that underfoot. But I would be careful, I think, in at least in the way you frame the question, that somehow we should not, we should somehow not allow content that is engaging. I mean, you know, that, that, is, that, that is what, I mean, every communication medium, for, I mean, why do newspapers run, you know, arresting headlines on their front pages and have done so for years? Every, sub, you know, every editor of a newspaper will tell you they do that to catch people's attention. Why is some content from, from, from music to video engaging? Because it's joyful, because it's inspirational, because it's moving, because it, it provokes emotions. I, so I think, I, I, I think it would be very odd for a social media app, which is all about people engaging with their friends, sharing things that they care about, 
to somehow see, seek to emotionally pasteurize or neutralize that. That, that, that I don't think, I don't, I, neither do I think it's possible, nor do I think it's reasonable, because we're all emotive human beings. What we do need to do, which is where we draw this distinction, is remove Remove stuff that is harmful and demote stuff where it where it's clearly being driven to to just simply elicit a sort of clickbaity response. I want to pivot you to the question of privacy. We're sitting in Brussels where it's high up on the list of, of priorities. And a big headline this week has been changes to Apple's operating system, which allow people to opt out of uh, tracking by third parties. This has been the subject of a big public dust up between Facebook and, and Apple. Uh, we look at the early information following this update. We see a very large proportion of iPhone users saying, please don't track, please uh, do not uh, take my information and sell it to third-party users. Uh, what does this say to you about people's attitude toward their privacy? By the way, you may have said this by accident, there's no question of companies like Facebook selling people's data to anyone. We don't do that. So that's not the issue. The issue is whether the data from your activity or more widely on the internet can be shared as it as it is in the open internet. I mean, the internet is just consists of endless, endless signals, you know, through pixels and cookies and so on. Uh, wh- whether that is something that people, you know, want to have continue uh, or, or not. Now, we've got no problem with the idea that you should be transparent with users about that. In fact, we've, we've, we're well ahead of Apple and other companies in explaining that to people, which is why on Facebook, we've got a tool called Off Facebook Activity, where you can precisely, as a user, look at the signals that a company like Facebook receives from elsewhere to sort of compose the, the signals that are used to determine what you see on, on Facebook. So we've got no problem with that. The problem we have is that the way that, that Apple has presented this to people appears to be a deliberate attempt to tarnish a totally legitimate business model. We don't do that. We don't go around saying that, you know, it's an illegitimate business model to sell slick looking hardware at very high prices, which is, you know, it's a perfectly legitimate business model. It sounds to be Apple's core business model. We don't go around tarnishing that. And and, and I think what's particularly difficult for, for us and for many others who rely on the ecosystem of an open internet where data is exchanged across apps is that it doesn't apply to Apple's own ad ecosystem. So, so Apple is not applying consistency. It's, 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 and look at Apple, um, expresses itself in quite, how can I put this, sort of quite high-minded, moralizing tones. But, you know, what appears to be behind it is a pretty plain vanilla commercial calculation, which is that they're sort of tarnishing the way in which other competitors use data from across the internet to uh, furnish their business model, and yet they don't apply that standard to themselves. And all we're asking for is consistency about how Apple treats itself compared to others, and, and candidly, just a bit of a bit of maturity in how you explain to users why this happens in the way that it does. And I do think lurking behind all of this is a very interesting and a pretty profound question about what kind of internet we want in the future. Do we want an open internet where data does flow, but yes, with consent and transparency for users, but does flow freely across the internet? Or do we want to move towards an internet where it's basically balkanized by walled gardens? And the danger is if you move towards that future, 
a sort of walled garden future controlled by Apple, it'll only be accessible to people who can pay it. We're very proud of the fact that we have a business model that allows billions of people to use our apps for free because they're paid for through advertising. We're also incredibly proud of the fact that our advertising platform is used by millions of small businesses in a way that simply wouldn't be possible if in future that this data cannot be freely exchanged. So that's what's at stake. One of the big headlines we had here in in Europe uh, last month was about a big leak or a scraping problem, as as Facebook would cast it, where uh, as a result of uh, a certain dysfunction, personal information, telephone numbers of as many as 500 million Facebook users uh, ended up on the internet. I want to ask you on a personal level, if if I can, if your number appeared on the internet, uh, would you have liked to be uh, receive a notification about that? Would you have liked to have been informed that uh, some of that information may have gotten out and who knows, you may want to change your number? Look, of course, this is unwelcome for people and it's an unacceptable practice, um, this data scraping. But as you know, non-public phone numbers were not obtained from Facebook. All the data that was scraped from Facebook was publicly available according to people's own settings. We, of course, we need to do more to try and bear down on this. We go very aggressively after the bad actors that do this kind of data scraping. It's unfortunately a bit of an industry-wide issue. I think on the, exactly the same week that that occurred to, to Facebook, I think it happened to LinkedIn on almost exactly the same dimensions, about half a billion people were affected. Um, I, I'm not in any way seeking to suggest that this is something that we're indifferent to, far from it. But given that this is public data, it's it's difficult to eliminate entirely and we are going to be as open as we can about the you know the steps that we take to make it harder still in the future okay so that was a tale of two nicks there our technology editor nick vinegar talking to nick clegg but nick vinegar you have uh, been talking to somebody else this week who you thought would give an interesting uh, counterpoint if you like or a different perspective on some of the issues you uh, discussed with nick clegg who was that yeah, we also spoke to Guillaume de Poche, who's the president of the Association of Commercial Television uh, here in Europe, to ask him how broadcasters, traditional media, compare to Facebook. Um, how would a TV station deal with a situation like Donald Trump breaking certain content rules on Facebook? And he brought some interesting contrasts between the way traditional media are regulated and the way Facebook is. We've just heard about the important Facebook decision about Donald Trump extending his ban from the platform. I just wanted to get your uh, feeling on this, Guillaume. Do you think there's been enough transparency about how this decision was taken? A couple of comments that I would like to make on on this one. Uh, First of all, this oversight board is an internal board. This is not an official third-party government-appointed board. So obviously, it raises the question of the credibility or at least the independence of such such board. And needless to say, in Europe, we have already these so-called ethical boards already existing on top of regulatory board. So my first point is having a panel of paid advisors to give opinion to the CEO is, of course, fine and nice. But what are the practical, legal and financial consequences of, of these? Second, I've actually checked the number of statements that this board has made since its inception at the end of 2020 is basically eight. Eight of millions, hundreds of millions of posts on Facebook. 
So is this really representative of the overall situation on Facebook? I've got my doubts on this one. So at best, it could be considered as a kind of an advisory panel to give broad opinions on matter. At worst, this is a PR tool of Facebook, because let's face it, Facebook has been repeatedly over the last 20 years stated that they're going to fix their editorial content. So it's really coming rather late and little in my view. Uh, The board stated that what was important was a so-called design and policy choices that Facebook management needs to make. Again, all fine. But I think it raises an issue that we at ACT have been raising from day one, which is to say that these platforms are not just mere conduit of third-party information and content. They are really editors of these. They organize the content of these third-party providers. And that raises the question, really, of their editorial role overall. Obviously, this whole issue of oversight boards and rules and regulations covers not only Facebook, but as also to cover all other platforms, whether it's Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, and the like. So bottom line, I'm a little bit skeptical about the efficiency of these oversight boards. I think it's simply not enough. Got it. I mean, obviously, the, the decision was, in this particular case, a very complex one, how to deal with a, a world leader who's found to be breaking certain content policies. And, and what I would do, Guillaume, is to turn that situation around for television and ask, you know, how would television deal with it? And is television really subject to the kind of strict oversight that you may be requesting of Facebook? Let's take a practical example. As you know, in France recently, there was a case called the Zemmour case on a channel called C8, where Zemmour, who is, by the way, a journalist from the television station, made in a political show some strong statements against immigration, uh, and in particular about the fact that he considered that minors left alone in France without their parents were basically a bunch of uh, frauders and of the stealers. I kind of summarize his statement. C8 received a letter probably a week afterwards, a couple of days afterwards from the local regulatory body, basically asking detailed explanations about what happened. So there is a regulatory body, which is not a self-engineered body, but a government-instilled body. We immediately took action. Point two... After having analyzed the case, they came to the decision that there had been a breach very clearly against the the C8, and C8 has been fined 200,000 euros. I mean, you can discuss about the amount, saying it's good, it's not enough. What I can tell you that at the level of a a channel, a cable channel like C8, 200,000 probably represents the revenues of one or two days of advertising on their channel. So it's not insignificant. And... The journalist has been uh, accused and taken out from the TV show for a while, up to a point that he actually made an appeal to the state council to try to reverse the decision, which he lost. So this shows you that beyond words here, you have a legal body who took immediate action with very clear penalties imposed on the host, and not only on the host, but also on the channel, because the channel has a so-called editorial responsibility vis-à-vis the the licensor. So why aren't Facebook and the others, why are they not subject to the same idea? Because at the end of the day, what is true on TV has to be true on the new medium or new form of television 
which is the internet. Thanks to Nick Vinegar for bringing us those conversations. So now, as promised, we're back with Reem and Matt with some uh, recommendations, uh, things that they've watched or read or listened to recently, which they think you might be interested in. Matt, what's yours? Well, this week I watched this new documentary that uh, came out, I believe, this month about a Saudi dissident who worked for The Washington Post. Reem's going to say his name for me. Jamal Khashoggi. Thank you. And it's it's really well done. He was, as people will remember, uh, murdered by the Saudi Secret Service, but that operation was put into motion by the uh, Crown Prince, which created a, a bit of a uh, diplomatic uproar. But it's been a couple of years now. This happened in 2018. A lot more has come out then. Uh, and, and this really is, is kind of the backstory to that and tells you a lot about uh, Khashoggi, you know, that I didn't uh, that I didn't know. And it's really, I think, uh, worth watching now to understand also the dynamic between Saudi Arabia and the United States, you know, which uh, is, is very multifaceted, to say the least. Mm. Maybe we should point out that I believe officially, of course, the Crown Prince uh, denies uh, this, but it has been widely found to be the case that it would have been impossible for this to have happened without his say-so. Reem, what's your recommendation? Well, I'm going to recommend something slightly more serious this time around. Uh, There's a new book that came out called... Le Liban d'hier à demain. Uh, so it's in French right now. There's an Arabic and English version that's going to come out. It, it means Lebanon from yesterday to tomorrow. Uh, it's written by the former Lebanese ambassador to the UN Security Council, current judge on the International Court of Justice, uh, someone who really knows what he's talking about. He talks about the reasons why Lebanon got into a civil war, the issues that are related to the current political system and how to fix it and and move on to uh, a state that is not as failed as it is today. Okay, thank you. And my recommendation I will keep very brief. It's a podcast series called Spy Affair. It revolves around a woman called Maria Brutina, whose name you may recognise. She got caught up in... um, Well, all of the investigations and inquiries into possible Russian influence in American politics, and particularly the Republican Party and the Trump campaign. And uh, it's a very interesting uh, multi-part podcast series. I'm halfway through it. And uh, you hear from Maria Butina herself and from a a very interesting cast of other characters. So that's Spy Affair. Reem, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe for free or follow us so you never miss an episode. Finally, just quickly, we've been bringing you lots on the podcast about Germany's general election. And now we have a special German election hub on our website. You can find it by clicking on German election among the hot topics on politico.eu. We'll also include a direct link in our show notes. That's it for episode 200. Talk to you next week for 201. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>